You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Today's SpyCast is brought to you by our friends at Mack Weldon and Blue Apron. Mack Weldon's reinventing men's basics, smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. And Blue Apron is a better way to cook. So we're joined today by Richard Easton, who has a BS from Brown University and an MLA from the University of Chicago. He is a co-author of GPS Declassified, From Smart Bombs to Smartphones. This book has been named as one of six books in the 2016 Space Professional Reading List by the National Security Space Institute in Colorado Springs. He's also contributed articles on the history of GPS to the Space Review, Quest, the History of Spaceflight Quarterly, Spaceflight, and the Institute of Navigation Newsletter. He's also spoken widely on the topic of GPS, giving a plenary address in 2009 to the AIAA's Guidance, Navigation, and Control Conference. He spoke at the 2010 Navy Day celebration here in D.C., at the 2012 After Longitude Modern Navigation and Context Seminar in England, and at the Explorers Club in New York in 2014. He is a fellow of the Casualty Actuarial Society and works as a consulting actuary in Winnecta, Illinois. Richard's father, Roger Easton, led the Space Applications Branch of the Navy Research Laboratory from the Vanguard satellite era in the 1950s to the early days of GPS development. Thank you, Richard, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. Good to be here. So I often ask researchers and authors how they were drawn to their topic, but it seems like a fairly simple answer for you. As I mentioned your bio, your father was a key contributor to the development of GPS. That's correct. He started his system called Timation for time navigation in 1964. And uh, the Air Force 621B system and my dad's Timation system were unified in 1973 to create GPS. And the two services have been fighting ever since over who did what. <laughs> well, and even before that, he assisted on what was called the Vanguard, Vanguard Project back in the 1950s. Um, and in sort of the design team for that very famous satellite. Uh, and then Minitrack, which is also an interesting component of all this, which looked at using ground-based sensors to track stuff in space. Yes, they, they started working on Minitrack. In fact, it may have played a role in the Naval Research Lab Project Vanguard being, being picked over Werner, over Werner von Braun by the Stewart Committee. The fact that Vanguard had a more sophisticated satellite package as well as a way to track it. Many people who thought they saw Sputnik optically actually saw the third stage behind it. So these small early satellites were very hard to see optically. And from the very beginning, they were planning to track Vanguard using radio waves, the transmitter. Yeah, I mean, these are basketball-sized satellites in orbit, you know, way up in space. The people think, oh, there it is. That's just, that's not something that we're going to be able to do very effectively. The Vanguard 1 uh, was six inches across, weighed three and a half pounds, 
dad used to bring it home. I've got a picture of myself with it. That's one of my favorite stories from your book was the idea. If if anyone's been to the Air and Space Museum here in Washington, D.C., the little Vanguard satellite they have was in your living room yes. for a while after an accident on the launch pad. Yeah, Sputnik 1 was launched in October of 57, and then Sputnik 2, over 1,000 pounds with a dog on board. Poor so <laughs> there was a lot of pressure on the Eisenhower administration. Let's get a satellite up. So they announced uh, Test Vehicle 3, TV3, in December 57, would launch the first satellite, which shocked the Vanguard people because that was the first three-stage test. They thought it had a very low chance of reaching orbit, and it became what's called Flopnik. You know, it got about three, three feet off the pad and then blew up on national TV. Um, but after it cooled down, the satellite survived. It's at the Air and Space Museum. You can see it right next to the Sputnik Key. I was there the other day. And um, Marty Votaw, who worked with my dad, said, what should we do with it? And dad said, well, we might as well take it back. So he put it in his little wooden box bought a seat for it on the commercial flight back to Washington. <laughs> and you can just imagine, I told that story to Dava Sobel, author of Longitude, and she was you know, wondering what TSA would make of the satellite today. But uh, th more innocent times in 1957, <laughs> and it sat in our, in our house overnight, and now you can see it at the air and space. But this suggests uh, for, for people out there, there may be younger listeners who haven't lived in a world without GPS. And even people my age, uh, I remember, yes, using paper maps and map quests back in the day. But for most of my adult life, I've had GPS in one form or another, even going back to when I was in the Army using pluggers in the 1990s. And then you had the first Magellans and Tom Toms and other things from that. But the embryonic development of GPS goes back to the very beginning of the space race. These are not things that are new ideas. These are very old ideas. Um, I, I want to talk about even the early developments that were key for what we call geospatial intelligence, so geoint. But some of the early ideas were trying to find ways to map military targets. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, one of the um, one of the objectives in the original proposals for Project Vanguard, so this is 1955, two years before Sputnik, was to map the positions of certain islands in the South Pacific that they didn't have a very good idea. And even going up to Apollo 8, so this is 1968, they found certain tracking stations were giving a different position for Apollo 8 than others, and they realized that their position of the ground station, they were about 300 feet off. So it wasn't that the ground station was malfunctioning. They literally didn't know where it was on Earth. It's hard to triangulate yes. when you're starting with the wrong position. So, so uh, satellites, they said, would make an ideal uh, way of mapping the rest of the Earth that was still relatively uncertain. Well, and they found some really interesting surprises that we take for granted today. If you've taken a basic Earth science class, you know Earth is not a perfect sphere, they didn't know that before this program. That program was really what helped to, to figure that out. Well, it, I mean, there was a French expedition in the 18th century that showed that Newton was right, and I'm going to quickly get beyond my knowledge, but they, they knew the Earth was not a perfect sphere. There were certain aspects of its pear-shaped that they did not know prior to looking at the early satellites. So we already we already talked a little bit about Minitrack. This is, is a, a development system that your father was deeply involved in, and that this followed things in orbit. And this is one of the key catalysts for GPS coming later. In many respects, it was the idea that if we can use ground stations to track satellites, we can kind of flip that around yes. and use satellites to know what's going on on the ground. The first space-based navigation system, Transit, was developed by two gentlemen at the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins. And they were tracking Sputnik using its Doppler and signal. As it was varying over time, they could get a, a, a track for it. And, and for the non-science-based listeners out there, that's the basic concept that when you hear a car coming 
and it makes a different noise. The vroom sound gets louder and then different pitches and different tones. The Doppler effect, it's not just about blue and red, but it's also audio involved in that as well. The, the frequency of the uh, signal transmitted from the satellite varies depending on whether it's going towards or away from you. So, so the Doppler, uh, they, they in March 1958, their boss told them, can you turn this into a space-based navigation system? And that became Transit, which was good for use by Polaris submarines, you know, trying to, to get a better position than just inertial navigation, obviously, with the... Uh, if if war with the Soviet Union had broken out, well, I mean, it's it's you can imagine it's near if impossible to hit a target inside the Soviet Union with a ballistic missile if you don't know the position you're launching that yes. missile from. Yes. And again, something we take for granted today that we know exactly where we are, but in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, there's not a lot of landmarks that kind of say, "Oh, okay, turn left at the next street." It just doesn't exist. Well, and of course, the Korean airliner. Right. You know that that it appears they punched incorrect information into their inertial navigation, and over 200 people died as a result. So uh, um, the um, I knew in the 1960s, uh, pioneer of airplane navigation, Philip Van Horn Weems, and he had trained Fred Noonan, who was Amelia Earhart's. Navigator. So there's an example pre-GPS where a navigation error killed two people. Right. So your father would later take the mini-track idea and apply it to actually tracking spy satellites for the U.S. government. Uh, and this was called the Naval Space Surveillance System. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Because this is taking it from a relatively small level to something that is, of course, incredibly important for American foreign policy. In January 58, so this is before Explorer 1, the first American satellite, was launched, he was thinking about Minitrack and uh, realized that Minitrack is depending on detecting the signal from the satellite. A Soviet spy satellite, most of the time, would be dark, right. not transmitting. So how do I get a system powerful enough to reflect off the satellite and go to the receiver stations and detect these quiet satellites. And as you said, uh, Naval Space Surveillance had receiver stations 100 times as long as Minitrack because of the need. Uh, Marty Votaw, who I mentioned helped work on Project Vanguard, described mi space surveillance as Minitrack except the the transmitter is on the ground rather than on the satellite. So it's got to go from the ground to the satellite and reflect to the receiver stations. And again, it takes a tremendous amount more power right. to do that. Well, you don't, you don't have a Sputnik that's going bing, bing, bing no. as it's flying through the air. These are satellites that are not trying to be found. And of course, for the Navy, being able to detect spy satellites was very important. They wanted to have the knowledge so they could change the actions of of the ships right. when the Soviet spy satellite was over overhead. And Minitrack was on a north-south configuration because they figured the early satellites would be launched to the east to take advantage of the Earth's rotations. Cape Canaveral is almost, a, you get the most advantage at the equator. That's why the Europeans are launching their their rockets now from French Guiana. And the Russians from Kazakhstan. And, yes, yeah. yes. But Cape Canaveral had the advantage of being right next to the water, so you can ship things by barge. But it's as, as far south almost as you can get in the continental U.S. So Minitrack was north-south. Space surveillance was east-west because they figured spy satellites are going to be launched into a polar orbit. The advantage of a polar orbit is... As the Earth rotates under the satellite, you gradually see the whole Earth. And, um, and so an east-west configuration all in the U.S., one of Minitrack's uh, stations was in Cuba. And you can imagine what happened after Castro took power. So there's an advantage, too, to being, being in the U.S. And, uh, and again, we're at the Spy Museum 
being able to detect Soviet spy satellites was very important right. in the Cold War. Well, one thing that one thing you write about that was extraordinary to me is it eventually gained the capacity to detect basketball-sized objects in orbit out to a range of over 17,000 miles in space. Yes, it was uh, extremely powerful for its day. If you've been listening to SpyCast over the last couple of weeks, you've heard me talk about Mack Weldon and their silver line of clothing. If you're like me, when you started your first job and you barely had enough money for rent and ramen, you bought most of your clothes at a big department store or retail store for as cheaply as you could. Now that I'm technically an adult, I try to buy clothes at places that don't also sell cereal and lounge chairs. Although, let's be honest, cereal and lounge chairs are still awesome. While I matured in my sensibilities when it came to dress shirts, shoes, and pants, I still shop for the basics at the same place I shop for cat food and shampoo. Does this sound familiar? Well, no matter what store-bought brands you've been using in the past, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. It will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, shorts, polos, and sweatpants that you'll ever own. The silver line is made possible with Silver XT2 technology. The real silver naturally destroys odor-causing bacteria. They added Pima Cotton to keep you cool and comfortable all day long. If you don't know, Pima Cotton is the softest in the world. And this combination keeps you comfortable, cool, and fresh always. And the silver line uses ecstatic antimicrobial technology, which has been proven by U.S. Special Forces, NASA, and Olympic athletes under the most extreme conditions. And, of course, Mack Weldon will always have the try-on guarantee, hassle-free returns, and free shipping on orders over $50. Mack Weldon is reinventing men's basics, smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. So what may be surprising to some, if not a lot of people, certainly anyone who hasn't really focused on Einstein all that much, is the fact that time is such a key consideration when considering GPS, the idea of accurate, specific timekeeping. And this was something your father worked on called the Timation Program. Can you talk a little bit about, number one, why do we care about time at all? It's like, well, there it is, right? Yeah. You think location would not be directly influenced by time, but this is essentially the foundation. This is key. If you don't have accurate time, you can't do any of this. The, um, I mean, they describe GPS or GNSS, Global Navigation Satellite System, that includes other countries' GPS systems, as a PNT system, positioning, navigation, and timing. And timing is extremely important uh, for Wall Street, for what time was your trans mm -hmm. did your transaction occur, for fiber optic cables, uh, electricity, power transmission, having synchronized time so that you maximize your connectors, you know, again, your fiber optic cables, is a critical aspect in our economy that GPS provides. Um, Einstein's correction, the, the GPS satellites are about 12,000 miles above the Earth, uh, so they're further away from the Earth's mass, but they're moving relative to the Earth. So if people ask you, uh, uh, how do you know there's any validity to general and special relativity. Well, GPS, the correction, if you didn't have that correction, you know, when your, your, uh, your system tells you turn right at, at K Street, um, if you didn't have that relativistic adjustment, you'd be miles off course. You'd be driving into the Potomac. Which yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes. But um, so the actual origins of timation in 64, there's a little uncertainty because, but in April of 64, my father was talking to Dr. Arnold Trostak from the Office of Naval Research, which is a parent company, a, a parent organization of NRL. Some of you may know Seth Trostak, his son, has been involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But they were talking about hydrogen masers, which is a very accurate atomic clock uh, first developed in 1960. And, and Roger Easton said to Dr. Shostak, gee, I think this makes passive ranging possible, which is what GPS uses. If you know what time the signal was transmitted from the satellite, you know what time you receive it, 
It's just you know, math at that point. You yeah, know yeah. how far you are. You're somewhere on the surface right. of a sphere that distance away from the satellite. And with four satellites, you get your three-dimensional position plus time. And the, the second Timation satellite launched in 69 was used to synchronize time between the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington and the Royal Observatory in England. So er, very early on, they were starting to synchronize time. Well, if anyone's been to the Naval Observatory here in D.C., which not only is where the vice president lives, but it's a working naval observatory where they have the atomic clock. Like, the, you know, the Navy really has been at the forefront of this. You know, that's where you can always driving down, uh, coming from Georgetown, down uh, Connecticut Avenue or Wisconsin Avenue, you drive by the Naval Observatory and be like, oh, that time's a little bit off. I wonder if it's right. Oh, it's right. It's, it's the time, right? Three weeks ago, we were at Schriever Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, where they control GPS, the two SOPS uh, squadron. And um, they have a sister organization from the U.S. Naval Observatory that synchronizes time with the, the Naval Observatory here. And they work closely with them on GPS time to make sure that the time synchronized to the uh, satellites stays stays uh, consistent. So I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the origins because the, there's a very famous saying from the early space program, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. The idea is there's no way in the world they're going to get this stuff done without funding. And I can't imagine that members of Congress really understood some of the basics behind this or why it would matter. But luckily, this was something the military did. And some of the early origins are military-specific and a lot of the funding, as you talk about in the book, became, started because of the need for precision bombing, for, for knowing where to put bombs on target, and also monitoring nuclear tests. So can you talk a little bit about some of the early military ideas behind using GPS in, in exact locations? In the late 60s, the Pentagon was looking for a successor system to transit. Transit was very good for Polaris submarines, but it was a two-dimensional system latitude and longitude, uh, available periodically through the day. They were looking for a worldwide system, three-dimensional, always available, all-weather system. Um, I've never been able to find what their original specs for accuracy were, but, but uh, it was claimed transit was good within a quarter of a mile. Here, they're probably talking about somewhere between 50 feet and 50 meters. And as you said, we had the Vietnam War and the attempts to knock out North Vietnamese bridges that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of planes would attempt to uh, knock them out. Many American uh, aviators would be either killed or captured. So, so there was a real need for precision bombing. And... Um, the Air Force had aerospace, had its system, 621B. The Navy was funding Timation. And just as McNamara a decade earlier said, we're going to have the same plane, the F-111, for the Air Force as the Navy, we're going to come up with one system. You even saw that back to the Stewart Committee. We, we can't afford to fund everyone. So in 1973, um, Clements, the Assistant Secretary of Defense, sent out a memo saying we're going to set up a joint program office with people from the Army, Navy, and the Air Force, but the Air Force is going to lead it. Uh, McNamara in the early 1960s made the Air Force the lead service for uh, space, which uh, the Navy has never liked. <laughs> uh, you know, you had the joke last week uh, you know, the, between the Department of Defense and the State Department, you know, the, who's, who's the enemy and who are right. the adversaries? Well, the Russians are the adversaries, <laughs> the State Department <laughs> is the, the enemy. enemy. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, there was, there's uh, similar feelings at times between, between the different military services. And um, there were attempts, even before the Joint Program Office, they have a, had what they called NAVSIG, Navigation Senior Executive Group with tri-service representation. And they were trying to get the FAA, 
you know, other civilian agencies interested in funding it, what became GPS. And they all said, oh, that sounds like a good idea, but Department of Defense has deep pockets. You can fund it. Right. And when it's working, uh, we'll use it. It's ironically, DOD asking other people to chip in is just kind of ridiculous yeah. in so many different ways. I mean, my, my background is nuclear intelligence. So I thought what was really interesting was the idea that some of these space-based nuclear test detectors were eventually piggybacked on GPS satellites. So kind of, it's not just for location anymore. You actually have the worldwide nuclear test uh, detection system as part of the GPS constellation. In the late 70s, GPS was in trouble, trying to get long-term funding and also trying to convince the military that, that this, to them, ambiguous system was worth pursuing rather than building more airplanes or ships. And, and they realized that nuclear detection devices, that GPS satellites at 12-hour orbits were ideal for that. So, so it added another constituency right. to, to support GPS and may well have saved the system circa 1980. For, for anyone that understands um, procurement in the Defense Department and how to keep weapon systems from being canceled, this will sound very, very familiar to you. If you can get more people on board, then you can protect your program. I'm going to skip ahead chronologically. We'll get back to some of the stuff in the 1980s, but I want to keep this basic military intelligence theme. Because, uh, one of my first real understandings of the power of the U.S. military was Operation Desert Storm. I was a teenager at the time. Uh, this is the first real... I mean, Vietnam was the first TV war, but this is the first where I just put on CNN all day and watch bombs drop on stuff. And Desert Storm really ends up being GPS's first major test case. Uh, and there's an operation that leads the war off. I mean, a lot of people think the Air Force started the war. As an Army guy, I'm very proud to say it was Apache gunships that did the first fighting. But there was an operation called Senior Surprise that was the first real use of GPS-guided cruise missiles. Uh, and it was so top secret at the time. And again, you think of it today, like, what's the big deal? But at the time, it was so top secret that very few people knew about this. And they, they'd adjusted some of the systems, taken nuclear weapons out, and put in GPS-guided munitions. So part of the reason for the secrecy was, you know, if I believe the B-52s were out of Barksdale, uh, if, if somebody had seen the type of weapons that they were loaded with, there would have been great concerns. Yes. <laughs> you know, are, are, we, are we doing a first strike on the Soviet Union? So that was part of the reason for the secrecy. And, and of course, when, when uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait in August of 1990, GPS was not yet complete. Uh, they were still using a combination of the test satellites and the operational satellites, and they had to work very hard to, to optimize the constellation over Iraq when active action was, was taking place. So, so and, and of course, we didn't yet have enough receivers to See, the military has additional signals that the civilian receivers cannot get. Um, so the, um, they put on selective availability to degrade the civilian signal just a couple months before Saddam invaded Iraq. And they had to take it off because most of the receivers used in Desert Storm were civilian Where receivers. Where they were shipped from home. And yes, from, people... Yeah. Uh, parents ship them receivers. There just were not enough military uh, receivers for the for the demand. So so we went to war with Garmin's, Magellan's, etc. And in some cases, you know, attached by the by the pilots, uh, they they didn't have GPS built into they their electronics. Them and, yeah, yeah, Velcro. Yeah. I mean, it's you know they said. Seven or eight years ago, before the iPhone became the rage, you know, where people had handheld garments, you know, thieves would look for the suction cups right. 
So, so back, back then, again, it was the first GPS war, but it was the first GPS war using civilian receivers. Well, I mean, that's a lot of people look at Desert Storm and all the smart bombs, the so-called smart munitions, laser guided, but GPS actually made dumb planes dropping dumb bombs smart yes. in many respects. If you know the position when you drop the bombs, you can get much greater accuracy. So yes, uh, dumb bombs, smart airplane leads to close to smart bomb results. Yeah, I mean, it, then it just becomes physics at that point. Yes. If, you, if you know all the parameters behind the air pressure and everything else, then it, you know where the bomb's going to drop, but you need to know where you are. Well, you know and also into the ground campaign, you know, there were the terrible dust storms, right. which in some ways accentuated the Allies' advantage because... With GPS, you still knew where you were, whereas for the Iraqi army, they, they were much, much more confused by the dust storm than we were. Well, and as bad as fratricide was during the storm, you can imagine how much worse it would have been if the Allied forces didn't have a good understanding of where they actually were. Uh, there could have been just uh, you know, exponentially more blue-on-blue combat going yes, on there. Yes, we had systems to tell where allied troops were and and obviously for that to work you need to have a very accurate coordinates which gps provided i've talked to you before about blue apron also blue apron is one of my favorite ways to learn about new foods now if i was left to my own devices i would subsist on a healthy diet of peanut butter and jelly and crunch berries now not together i'm not an absolute monster i would alternate them one for breakfast one for lunch one for dinner you get the picture with blue apron you get variety New recipes are created weekly and are not repeated within a year. Choose your meals from a variety of recipes or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. They're also flexible. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Choose delivery options to fit your needs, and there's no weekly commitment. So you only get deliveries when you want them. So if you travel a lot, you can just put it off for another week, and you won't have to worry about food at your house. And most importantly for me, Blue Apron is easy. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Now, not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you. So it's important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they hit the highest standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Now, this is a reading and a podcast, so you may not believe me, but you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free. So there's no obligation. There's no reason to not try this out. Free food, guys. And this comes with free shipping. By going to blueapron.com spycast, you'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash spycast, Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So I, because I'm ex-Army, I want to again talk about the fact that Apaches fired the first shots in Desert Storm. Um, but even in this case, this is where time from the GPS systems were, was key because these attacks were spread out across a very large front. They, knew, they were designed to fire simultaneous hellfire strikes against these air defense systems. And the only way to do that is if you have accurate to the however many zeros percentage. Uh, and it was all provided by GPS in this case. Yes, you're, you're trying basically through the Apache helicopters to open a wedge through the Iraqi defense system. So you need to knock out certain radars within a real close amount of time to allow the following planes to get safely through that area to knock out further systems. So the, the time synchronization was very important. One of my favorite stories from, uh, from Dutcher Storm is the fact that during this big Hail Mary left hook that Norman Schwarzkopf and the planners of the war came up with to go around the Iraqi forces, the problem was that Western Iraq wasn't well known by most American planners. There weren't a lot of recent maps. And actually, two, two young officers from the Pentagon actually went down to the Library of Congress down the street and pulled old architectural and archaeological maps from the early 20th century that actually showed where some of the wadis and roads were. But GPS was the key to this because 
you need to actually know, you could have a map, but you need to know where you were in the middle of the desert in order to come around. Because this is one of the most successful operations in history to where we were hitting the Iraqi army where their tanks were facing the wrong direction. And for anyone that's been there, and a lot of our listeners have, the middle of Western Iraq is a no man's land. There's nothing out there. If you don't have accurate navigation, you're in big trouble. Well, and another important thing is you talked about geostatial mapping. You need not only to know where you are, you need to know where the targets are. And there were some cases in the early part of the Iraqi war where we missed the targets because we were using the wrong coordinates for the targets. So they tried to synchronize to the 1984 system, but some of the targets they had on an older coordinate. So again, you not only need to know where you are, you need to know exactly what you're firing at. Absolutely. So you alluded earlier to uh, the Korean airline 007 that was shot down in 1983. This has been pointed out by many, and and you are potentially one of them, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, I'm going to let you do it yourself, as a catalyst for the move of GPS to being beyond just the military and for civilian use. Now, I, I'm hedging this a little bit because you write in the book that it was always intended yes. to be used for civilians. But does this kind of put it over the top by ending the automatic uh, uh, degradation of the signal by making it more accessible to civilian use? The 1974 GPS development plan talks about civilian uses, a civilian signal and a military signal. So GPS was built in for, and civilian receivers were being released in 1982. Mm -hmm. So a year before the Korean airliner. What it did, I mean, did do is, first off, show the need. Right. And and also the White House could say, this is an application. You talked earlier about needing the funding. Right. You know, my dad always said you need three things. You need the idea, you need the technology, you need the funding. If if you're in the 15th century and you're talking about satellites, you don't have the rocket technology to get them. But but again, funding is a critical aspect. Uh, Harry Sunderman, I referred to NAVSEG earlier, which was before GPS was unified. Harry Sunderman said... He was a senior person in the Pentagon for the Navy for electronics. He said people would come to him and say, if you can give me $250 million, I've got a use that'll save a billion dollars. And Harry would say, well, I don't have the $250 million. So, so again, both you have the nuclear detection, the shot shooting down of the Korean airliner, that gave potentially another constituency for GPS. We've talked a lot about the impact of GPS. It, it, very few people today could get along with, even people who don't realize they use it every day, whether it's working the stock market or any kind of telecommunications, it is all over the place. What I want to talk to you about is some of the threats and issues that GPS faces in the future, and maybe even today. And you already referred to the idea of jamming. And jamming of GPS signal, people may be surprised, is not all that difficult to do. Um, 9-11 even made us instantly work on sophisticated jamming equipment because of the fear that GPS could be used against us. Um, Can you talk a little bit about jamming and and how it could potentially be a problem? Well, you have, you know, some, one of the benefits of GPS is, is tracking of, of trucks, you you know, Federal Express, uh, and any number of companies want to know exactly where their trucks are to optimize their shipments. Now, you have some truckers who don't like being tracked. They may want to spend an extra 15 minutes for lunch. And so they have a jamming device in their trucks. And with Newark Airport, they were having trouble with, with GPS for planes landing at Newark being jammed. And in one case, they found out it was a trucker on the New Jersey Turnpike going close to Newark Airport. So, so there somebody's jamming it for... Reason one, but it's interfering with GPS in another situation. Uh, North Korea has jammed. You know, they're always rattling the cages of South Korea and Japan, and they've jammed 
GPS in South Korea more than once. Well, it just shows you don't have to be a Russia or a China or a U.S. that sophistication to actually do this. I mean, this is truckers. It's a kind of a haha story. But this is a country versus state versus state jamming that North Korea, arguably one of the most backward states in the world, has a capability of knocking out the GPS for almost all of South Korea, including the military in many cases, uh, which means that you don't really need the kind of sophistication you would think for doing jamming operations. Well, in one of the James Bond films in the 1990s, at the beginning, they had the Chinese spoofing GPS to a British submarine. Right. You know, so you know... You know, GPS has reached the public consciousness when it's, when it's included in, a bond. in, this, yeah. in a bond film. Well, spoofing is, I mean, even more dangerous than jamming. You brought that up. I mean, at least jamming, you know it's happening, right? You know that, oh, I don't have a signal. This isn't working. But spoofing, as you mentioned, forget pop culture. This is something that happens every day, can have a significant impact. Because if you think you're one place and you're somewhere else, I mean, if you could, you could spoof... Uh, a weapon system to fire in the wrong place. I mean, you could have a lot more of, if you remember the the Kosovo War, where we accidentally bombed the Chinese embassy. Uh, I don't know if that was a result of, of just stupidity or a mistake, but you could see stuff like that happening and turning the tide against a country in a war. I mean, one of the themes in our book is the problem now is not finding uses for GPS, it's over-dependence. So um, in the 19th century, when um, when there was a discussion whether to use a marine chronometer or take lunars to to figure out your position when uh, American ships were going to India for trading, they found at that point inertial navigation was good for about 14 days, and they could shoot lunars twice a month when the moon was in its first or third quarter. So it worked well that you had two different navigation systems working together. And for GPS to, to ward off problems like spoofing, if you have a good inertial navigation system, that may tell you, hey, something's wrong with my GPS. So getting additional systems to be a check on GPS is important. And, of course, people have talked about enhanced Loran, eLoran, as a very good backup system to GPS. And the micro PNTs and radio navigation systems, you talk yes. about several of these inside the book yes. Yes. that people, agencies like DARPA are working on to try to prevent this from happening. So, so the, the over-dependence and having backup systems is, is critical in this day and age where, where, again, our adversaries know the importance the American military places on GPS. And, and having additional systems so that they cannot render us uh, helpless by simply knocking out GPS. Well, any space-based system will still be vulnerable to something I paid a lot of attention to, and that's anti-satellite technology. Because most of these major nations now, and even some of the more, let's say, meddling ones, are developing capabilities of shooting down satellites. And we've become so dependent not just for GPS, for everything from signals intelligence, imagery intelligence, to communications, to, you know, uh, watching football on Sunday, to these satellites. Uh, and, and this is not supposed to be developed, but everyone, I guess there's a, the Chinese tested one not so long ago. The Americans, we didn't test one technically. We shot down one of our own military satellites, but the rest of the world kind of saw through that and said, what are you doing? Uh, this seems uh, pretty like it's going to be one of the first shots of World War III, if there is one, after the big cyber attack will be shooting down a bunch of satellites. Is there a countermeasure in the future, uh, or at least people thinking about a countermeasure in the future, to provide us a, a navigational system that's not space-based? Well, again, enhanced Loran okay, so that is and, not, yeah. and um, improved inertial navigation. Of course, we not only have to worry about other countries, you know, Carrington-type events. That refers to a bad solar storm in 1859 that, um, you know, they had the telegraph system starting in 1844, and they suddenly realized that a lot of telegraph systems were not operational. So, so even back then, uh, a bad solar storm could have an effect and a couple of years ago, a bad solar storm just missed the Earth. So, so um, having ground-based 
systems uh, that can back up GPS, and potentially the military is talking about more flexibility in their satellites, having dual-use satellites, or sending up cheaper GPS satellites that don't include the nuclear detection. So you may have the, the full-fledged satellite and the simpler ones that, that uh, give you more flexibility. Currently, we use 31 satellites. Uh, software limits us to 32. And they have, I think it's seven older satellites that could be used in an emergency. They could put them back in the constellations if some of our 31 were knocked out. Using Russian rockets? Or? No, they're, they're already in space. <laughs> oh, okay. They so were used okay. for GPS. And then when we got newer satellites, uh, they deactivated, stopped using okay, them. Okay, so like they're, they're in sleep mode and yes, we can bring them yes, back. Yes, they're okay. inert. Um, but but uh, and, and the new GPS-3 will have more powerful signals, but the ground system, OCX, they're having real problems with and, you know, discussion of whether uh, we cannot launch, we cannot control the new GPS-3 satellites with our current ground system. So they either need to have OCX operational or now the Air Force is looking at upgrades to our current system to where they can at least control the new GPS-3. Another possibility, too, um, the Europeans with their Galileo system, the Russians with their GLONASS, the Chinese with their Beidou system, we could start having more military receivers be, being able to detect signals from more than one system. And that way, if they knocked out a couple of GPS satellites, hey, if you're using Galileo, it makes it makes it much more flexible and tougher to uh, to cripple the U.S. military. Well, let me wrap up by going to a non-kinetic conversation, and that, that's another what I consider a threat or an issue involving GPS, and that's a broader issue: of privacy versus security. Um, law enforcement has been using GPS for a little bit of time. It's very controversial. And then this really kind of is folded into these broader conversations about metadata for intelligence purposes, like with cell phone tracking, tracking of individual vehicles. These are things that you're not necessarily doing a, a listening device on somebody, but knowing where someone is, knowing where they're going. Uh, there's a lot of questions about, does this violate privacy? And actually, the courts have really ruled upon this relatively recently. Can you talk a little bit about this back and forth between privacy and, and, and secrecy when it comes to GPS? Yeah, it's certainly uh, a couple years ago when for Apple, it was revealed that they were t retaining a lot of information with your smartphones. It made a lot of people concerned. And um, we've had cases where uh, law enforcement has put GPS tracking devices on a person's car without a warrant. And, and that's made a lot of people uncomfortable that, you know, the, the uh, public roadways, you should not give up your right to privacy. Um, in, a, in a rare bipartisan agreement yes. by many members of the Supreme Court where you've got Alito and Kagan and others on the same page, which is very rare. Yes, uh, yes. All seem to agree to that same idea. But, of course, there's the other problem, too, of private tracking, you know, uh, uh, person in a divorce case wanting to know where you are are, are going. So the uh, the the privacy there, where it's again, it's not the government doing it; it's a private individual. And um, I think those cases are going to continue to be fought out in the courts. Um, I would be pretty strong for privacy, but. Another thing, too, simply fighting crime through having cameras everywhere. I mean, uh, that information could be uh, in the wrong hands uh, is Orwellian in nature. And clearly GPS gives the capability for, for uh, much more intensive tracking of individuals. Well, any picture you take on an iPhone or anything is now geotagged automatically yes. by yes. GPS. People have said if you're posting photos online and you want privacy, 
you want to take that off, and yet what percentage of people right. do that? That's probably one, one quick thing I want to mention, though, is just what benefit we're getting out of GPS. Inception to date, we spent about $40 billion, and the best estimate I've seen is that we're getting the U.S. taxpayer alone is getting about $100 billion of benefit every year out of GPS just for the civilian uses, right. not for the military. And, of course, we're giving a great benefit to the rest of the world, which uh, is not necessarily always acknowledged. But You're talking about the most cost-effective program in history, perhaps. I mean, it's, Probably. It's- I mean, even if you included the cost before GPS to develop rockets yeah. able to get satellites to 12,000 miles, it's a tremendous win every year. We're getting a benefit more than our inception-to-date cost for GPS. And that's something for your Congress critters to make them aware because the Air Force is under you know, severe cost pressures and GPS is one system that has been a huge win and we don't want to have it be degraded by not recognizing the huge benefit we get from it. We'd like to thank our great sponsors, Mack Weldon and Blue Apron for continuing to support SpyCast. Remember, you can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the promo code SPYCAST and three free meals at BlueApron.com slash SPYCAST. That's 20% off at MacWeldon by using promo code SPYCAST and three free meals at BlueApron.com slash SPYCAST. Well, Richard Easton is the author of GPS Declassified from Smart Bombs to Smartphones. We only touched upon a small part of this book if you want to know more. And and to me, as a science geek, this this is a fascinating book. I, as a as a wonk, I really wanted to. I mean, really the inside baseball of the development of GPS. So I highly recommend taking a look at this book. Thank you, Richard, for taking the time to talk to us here at Spycast. It's been great being here. Thank you for listening to Spycast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both SpyMuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about Spycast email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week. here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.